in Gombe, the chimpanzees climb trees in the evening, make a nice comfortable nest, sleeping platform, bending over the branches, and they sleep all night. If you go to Mali, which is the exact opposite of rainforest, it's very dry and very hot. So very often there, the chimpanzees actually forage at night because it's cooler. In Uganda, where they live in forests, but the forest is being increasingly encroached upon by people, again, in moonlit nights, they will do crop raiding just because they're running out of food in the forest and they find it safer to raid the crops at night. So that shows how adaptable they are. Dame Jane Goodall has spent nearly six decades acting as an intermediary between humankind and our closest non-human relatives. She made her first visit to live among the chimpanzees of what is now Tanzania in 1960. Since then, her work has vastly expanded our comprehension of chimpanzees and seen Dame Jane herself make the unusual leap from science to popular culture. Few are the people to have been acknowledged both by The Simpsons and by Gary Larson's Far Side cartoons. Now 83, Dame Jane still travels more than 300 days a year, an indefatigable defender of the habitat of our ancestors. Jane, just as a, a starting point, uh, before we began recording, you were discussing where you've already been this year and what you have coming up, and you were outlining a, a travel schedule that was actually kind of tiring just to listen to. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is your working life like now? Clearly you don't have an average working week, but what are you mostly busy doing these days? Mostly travelling all over the world and giving lectures, meeting decision makers, going to schools and universities, <laughs> talking about climate change, talking about protection of the forest, talking about whatever issue happens to be, you know, uppermost of the time. Because, I mean, sometimes it's like rescuing monkeys from a lab from horrible experiments, but big public lectures as well. And I've just been very involved, which entailed a lot of travel, with the new movie Jane that the Geographic put out. So, you know, it's varied all the time. How much time are you getting to spend in Tanzania now, then? I visit twice a year for about three weeks at a time, but that's in Dar es Salaam, where my family is, Gombe, where the chimps are, and then our programme to improve the lives of the people, which is now in 70 villages. Gombe itself, of course, which was where your your reputation was initially forged, do, do you miss spending as much time there as you used to be able to? Well, I would miss it if it was as it was, but it's changed. And, you know, there are more tourists and it's uh, run by Tanzania National Park, so there's nothing we can do about it. Sometimes there's more tourists than I think there should be. And so it's just not the same anymore. Is it changing entirely for the worse? Are things better for the area and better for the creatures? Or is it a case now of a, a dwindling population having to survive in a, a smaller area? No, because since we began working with the people around Gombe, which we began in 1994, um, it was when I flew over in a small plane and I looked down at what had been part of the equatorial forest belt from the western part of East Africa, curling through uh, Burundi, Rwanda, Uganda, right across to the west coast. And Gombe was just a little part of that. When I flew over in 94, 
It was a tiny oasis. It's only about 35 square miles, surrounded by completely bare hills. And that's when I realised more people living here than the land can support, too poor to buy food from elsewhere. Farmland is overused and infertile. If we don't help the people, there's no way we can save the chimps. So we began with this programme, Take Care or Takari, with the 12 villages around Gombe. And it was incredibly successful, tiny bit of money to start with. The funny thing is it came from the EU, and the first thing they said is, you have to ask for more. We don't give out small grants like this. And I said, <laughs> but we don't know if it's going to work because it was new back then. And so they eventually agreed. It was a three-year grant, renewed for another three years. And um, then after that, it was um, US aid. So it's very holistic. And instead of marching into the villages as a bunch of arrogant white people, which is typical back then. Mm. It was local people chosen from the local community who went in and listened and asked them what they thought we could do that would be most helpful. So, of course, growing more food, which meant restoring fertility to the overused farmland without chemicals, and then working with the Tanzanian, the local authorities, to improve education and health. And then gradually we could introduce water management programs. I think probably the most successful intervention was to start microcredit programs, which is based on Mohammed Yunus's Grameen Bank. And, you know, he's one of my heroes. He took me to Bangladesh and I met the women he'd helped and it made a deep impression on me. So the women in these 12 villages could select for themselves environmentally sustainable projects. And then they, there's something like over 90% payback. Mm. And I think why the microcredit is so good rather than just aid being given out is they then own it. When they've paid back, it's theirs and they're proud. They're immensely proud of what they've achieved. And they can take out another loan if they so wish. So the idea at the beginning, although we didn't talk to the village about it, was that they would become our partners, that once they were able to grow enough food, yet they would want to preserve the environment. Because these people living out there, they know that cutting down trees on the really steep slopes causes soil erosion. If you're desperate to grow food to feed your family, then what are you going to do? You know, they know that streams were getting clogged up. Gombe is a series of valleys. Mm. And there was the erosion on the steep slopes was such that half a village washed away at one point. So one of our programs that we introduced quite early is leaving the land to regenerate. And at first we thought we had to plant trees, but actually that's not necessary. And if you leave the land, the seeds will regenerate as long as it hasn't been overused for too long. So the chimps now have about three times more forest than they had when we began that program. The villagers themselves set aside a buffer to protect the villagers from the chimps and the chimps from the villagers, and also set land aside to form a corridor so that our cut-off chimps could start moving, you know, the adolescent females, into new communities. And it's begun to work. So now that program is in 72 villages, and that's going down. 
south of Gombe, which is where Tanzania's last wild chimps live. And they're not in protected land at all. They're in village forest reserves. So we use the same program there to protect the forest, which around Gombe, spreading out, is restoring the forest. It's unusual to be able to get to speak to somebody who has assembled a life's work of expertise in a particular field. And, and reading back on your stories about the research you'd done into chimpanzees and the time you'd spent with chimpanzees, in that particular field, I was just wondering, is there anything that you still don't feel like you know about them that you really wish you did? Is there an aspect of the chimps in particular that you feel like you never quite figured out? There's a research team at Gombe, and they're still finding new things out. One thing which I really wish I understood is that the adolescent female will leave her natal group and go into a neighbouring community. And some of them will then become pregnant and stay there. Others move back and forth and eventually give birth in the natal community. And we don't know why. There doesn't seem to be a pattern. But the other thing that I really wish that I could get to grips with is that in different parts of Africa, where people are now studying chimps in different places, there are different cultures. There's different tool-using cultures, different ways they use their sort of inborn gestures and postures in a slightly different way. And the tragedy is that the forests and chimps are going before we've actually uncovered that. To give an example, in Gombe, the chimpanzees climb trees in the evening, make a nice comfortable nest, sleeping platform, bending over the branches, and they sleep all night. If you go to Mali, which is the exact opposite of rainforest, it's very dry and very hot. So very often there, the chimpanzees actually forage at night because it's cooler. In Uganda, where they live in forests, but the forest is being increasingly encroached upon by people, Again, in moonlit nights, they will do crop raiding just because they're running out of food in the forest and they find it safer to raid the crops at night. So that shows how adaptable they are. When you talked about that behaviour of the adolescent females in that particular region or troop, though, and not being sure why they did a thing, is there always a reason? Is there always a logic and a rationality to chimp behaviour? Because one of the things that your early work forced us to confront was the idea that they have more in common with human beings than we may have preferred to suppose. And it strikes me, at least, this may be projecting my own neuroses, that people, at least, sometimes just do stuff. and There's not really a particularly good reason for it. Is there always a logical or rational reason with chimpanzees? No, there isn't. <laughs> and we have some males who are actually killing the adolescent males in their community who would grow up to help strengthen the community when they have these warlike behaviours between communities. And we don't know why that's happening as an individual male behaving like that. But when I talk about these females, some stay, some don't. So presumably there's a reason why one would just leave everybody she knows and set off into a new world. It's not just one female, it's a lot. And the others, well, they go and they get pregnant, but then they go home, and that's where they then stay. OK, well, on the subject of young females setting off into a new world to make a new life, you may not have noticed the anniversary with your coming and going, but last year, I think, was the 60th anniversary of your first visit to Africa. When you first went, how plausible an idea that this could be a life did that seem? 
When I went, I thought probably I'd be there about three years, maybe. Louis Leakey thought I'd be there for ten. So he had this long-term vision, you know, which is pretty amazing. And then, of course, the more I learned, the more there was to learn and built up the research station. And as I say, we're still learning. So back then, the longest study of chimps that had been done in the field was three months, and the guys saw chimps once. (laughs) (laughs) How much an advantage to you, even if it may not have seemed like it at the time, was the relative lack of knowledge and understanding about that field? Because we now live in a world in which you can find out extraordinary amounts about most things extremely quickly, even if you don't necessarily understand it all. You can find out a lot of stuff. Whereas you arrive at a time where, as you've said before, most of what you understood of Africa you gleaned from Hugh Lofting's Dr. Doolittle novels and Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan books, which I suspect were not necessarily an entirely helpful guide once in the field. No, well, I mean, I knew they wouldn't be. (laughs) I had read everything I could. There's a wonderful book called The Mentality of Apes, and it's written by a German psychologist called Wolfgang Kohler. And he studied a captive colony, and that really gave me the most insight into what I might find in the field. But it was a huge advantage, being the first, because everything I saw was new. You know, it was when I saw tool using for the first time that Leakey could involve National Geographic, and the National Geographic agreed to continue funding when my first little six-months grant ran out. That first glimpse or first understanding of chimpanzees using tools, which was at the time extraordinarily confronting and revolutionary, have you wondered retrospectively where you got the nerve at the time not just to decide, I am moving as a young English woman to Africa in the late 1950s to study chimpanzees, which is an undertaking in itself, but then to realise, actually, I think a lot of the conventional wisdom might actually be wrong, and I'm going to be the person to say so. It would have been a lot easier not to do any of that stuff. Have you ever wondered where that nerve came from? Well, it wasn't quite like that. I loved animals from the time I was born. People say, what triggered your love of animals? Well, I was born that way. I had a very supportive mother, and this is key to my success, so... When I she, was, she went with you the first time, didn't she? Not to Africa. I went to Africa on my own. Okay. I saved up money. There wasn't enough money for university, so I had not been to college. And I went to Africa because my dream when I was 10 was to go to Africa, live with wild animals and write books about them. I mean, women didn't, you know, <laughs> you didn't have women scientists back then, not in that sort of life. And everybody said, dream about something you can achieve. But my mother said, if you really want something, you're going to have to work extremely hard, take advantage of opportunity, but don't give up. And that's the message that I take around the world now, particularly in disadvantaged communities. And so many people have come up to me and said, Jane, I want to thank you because you taught me that because you did it, I can do it too. So I went to Africa wanting to live with animals and write books about them, any animals. (laughs) It was Louis Leakey, the paleontologist, anthropologist. It was he who wanted me to go and study chimpanzees because he felt it would help him have a better feeling for how Stone Age men and women might have behaved. 
So if chimpanzees weren't a motivating ambition, once you initially encountered them, did you feel an instant affinity with them? <laughs> they ran away. <laughs> well, that, that was them not feeling an instant affinity with you. For weeks they'd never seen a white ape before. <laughs> they would just take one look and run off. And honestly, by that time my mother had come because the authorities, it was British then, it was the remains of the crumbling British Empire. It was Tanganyika. Tanganyika, yeah. Yeah. And the authorities said they wouldn't take responsibility. It was ridiculous to have a young girl going off on her own into the forest. So it was hard work to get the money in the first place. No degree straight from England. Then eventually the authorities said, well, all right, but she has to bring a companion. And so mum volunteered to come. And it was she in those early days, she boosted my morale, you know, I'd get back. Every day I was up in the mountains before light and back just around dusk. Being depressed, they'd run away again, they'd run away. And she said, but Jane, you know, with your binoculars, you found that peak and you're observing how they make nests at night. You're learning about their calls. You see the kind of foods they're eating. You see that sometimes they're traveling alone, sometimes little family groups, sometimes many of the small groups coming together when there's a delicious new fruit available. So she said, you're learning more than you think. And it was really sad that the breakthrough observation, this tool using and tool making, was just two weeks after she left. The other, I guess, breakthrough observation you made at that period, and it seems certainly in retrospect weird that it was regarded as a breakthrough, was the idea that chimpanzees have any kind of emotional life. Was it a big struggle to get that accepted? <laughs> yeah, but see, I learned about it when I was a child from my dog. OK, so when I got to Cambridge finally to do a PhD, because Leakey said I had to, it was actually taught that the difference between us and all other animals was a difference of kind. And I was told I could not talk about chimpanzees having personalities, minds capable of rational thought, and certainly not emotions. But because of the dog, and because <laughs> the supportive mother had given me, you know, some kind of self-confidence, although I was very shy, and I was really lucky in that my supervisor, the eminent Professor Robert Hind, he started off my sternest critic. Then he came to Gombe and he said in two weeks he learned more about animal behaviour than the rest of his life put together. And it was he who taught me how to put my revolutionary ideas to think scientifically, to think logically. And I've been grateful for that ever since. Once you get hold of the idea that animals have personalities and they have temperaments and they have moods, with chimpanzees in particular, that obviously means there's going to be differences between different animals. Has there ever been or is there ever examples of you encountering a chimpanzee you just don't like? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. I absolutely didn't like passion. She was a terrible mother and she cannibalised three infants, probably ten altogether other people's infants, and she was a terrible mother to her own, at least for the first two. And I can't say I like Frodo, this big bully. He bullied other chimps, but he bullied researchers and particularly me. You can't really like somebody who's always stamping on you and dragging you and could kill you like that, so he didn't want to. 
I mean, he could have killed any of us, but it was just bravado, showing off. You know, I'm dominant. And I kept thinking, Frodo, I know you're stronger than me. I know you're dominant. I completely agree. Please leave me alone. I didn't say that, but trying to will him to think it. But again, if you encounter that sort of behaviour in a human being, you're likely, or at least you certainly should think, that this person is just a bit of a jerk and best avoided. But when it is a chimpanzee perhaps acting on, I don't know, from less sophisticated motives, is there a practical, rational reason for that behaviour? Spoilt brat. (laughs) No, truly. He had a very supportive mother and she was top-ranked, Fifi, and she became the dominant female, just as her mother had been. And Frodo also had a very supportive older brother. So he could get away with murder because he would always have the support of these two dominant individuals. Do you find yourself now, having spent so much time with the primates, with the chimpanzees in particular, in regarding human behaviour in either your personal life or in just the general public sphere in a similar way? Do you sort of see groups of humans operating in the same fashion? Yes, I do, and I love watching people. (laughs) (laughs) If you're just sitting and you have to wait, like I'm always waiting in airports, so I watch people, and it's sometimes very, very funny. What kind of judgments can you make about, say, people waiting in airports. I speak as somebody who's probably spent far too much time in them, I suspect probably not as much in my entire life as you do in an average year, but nonetheless. <laughs> what are you able to tell about, say, you know, a group of family and friends of eight or ten people? Well, I mean, you can certainly tell a family that isn't very responsible for their screaming child. And, you know, I wouldn't have let my son disrupt an entire room by screaming. I would have taken him out. And you can certainly tell when people are frustrated, the way they shout when there's a plane delay, and it's not the fault of the people who are telling them, you know? (laughs) And just see little things like that. And then you see, I love watching mothers and children and the different ways they behave and the different ways that they keep the child amused and happy. And I'm very upset today the number of times the child is just given some video game or something, even little kids. I did want to ask you as well about how you've come to see your own representation elsewhere in popular culture. One of very few people have been referenced in both The Simpsons and a Gary Larson cartoon. It's always an interesting question, I think, to ask people who've developed or acquired any kind of public persona at all. Does it seem like you when this sort of occurs? Is it something you take personally? When it first began to happen, I was really, I didn't know what to make of it. I mean, it made me very, very uneasy. What was your first recollection of that happening? It was when I was in Santa Fe in the US and a couple came up to me and a woman said, are you Jane Goodall? And I said, she said, may I touch you? (laughs) This was absolute, I nearly died. And I said, well, we could shake hands. That would count. Yes. And then I signed a little thing for her. Well, now I can't go through an airport. And last time I arrived in Dar, there was Tanzanian businessman And he said, I'm really sorry, but you are eminently recognisable, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So the way I came to terms with it is, as you said, there's two Janes, there's me, and then there's this icon out there which is really being created by the Geographic and Discovery Channel, and I have to try and live up to that reputation. You know, I thought about it a lot, and I realised that although it's not very comfortable... It's important, and I'll make use of it. So when I get recognised around the airports and they want photographs and things, and a lot of them cry, 
And so they all get brochures. I tell them all they've got to join our youth program, Roots and Shoots, and maybe they'd make some donations. And you can trace my path around America, apparently, by the donations that come in and the new, <laughs> new groups of our youth program that spring up. People cry, really? Yes. Have you ever wondered what it is about the fact of meeting you or, I guess, that personal connection with the work you've done that does have that effect on people? I don't know why they cry, really. They've always been dying to meet me. My grandmother's favourite quotation was, excuse these tears, this joy which bids them flow. <laughs> and then there's also a lovely Native American saying, without tears in the eyes, there's no rainbow in the heart. So I tell them that and they cry even more. <laughs> Obviously, this effect that I have is really useful because people are changing the way they behave. They're thinking about the little choices they make each day. I can't tell you how many vegetarians I've created, even in Argentina. You created vegetarians in Argentina. Mm. That is a tough sell. In five days, it was 11 vegetarians. Tell us a bit, if you would, about the youth programme. The programme Roots and Shoots began in Tanzania in 1991 with 12 high school students who were concerned about street children with no homes, about dogs having stones thrown at them, about poaching in the national parks with the government not doing enough about it, about illegal dynamiting of the coral reefs, that sort of thing. And they came from eight different secondary schools. So I went and talked at the schools. We got a big group together. And this program began then with the main message, every single one of us makes a difference every single day and we have a choice as to what kind of difference we make. And because I learned in the rainforest how everything is interconnected, everything has a role to play, we decided that each group of Roots and Shoots would choose themselves three projects, one to make things better for people, one to make things better for animals, other animals, one to make things better for the environment we all share. And it now is in 100 countries. I think one of the things that's so vital today with the world and the mess it's in is that we don't teach them, but coming out of this is, okay, you get to know about children your age and other cultures, and you come to understand that although we may have different coloured skin, wear different clothes, have a different religion, and so on. If we bleed, the blood is the same. Science has proved it. If we cry, our tears are the same. We all laugh, have a sense of humour, even though it may differ a little from culture to culture. We're sort of part of one family. And this is the hope for, like, children in Israel and Palestine. We have examples where we try and bring face-to-face -face meetings, and there were students from Israel and Palestine. At the beginning of the meeting, they wouldn't even look at each other. By the end of the four days, I think they didn't go to bed and they was just working out how can we change our countries. You mentioned the sense of humour. Is that something you detect in primates, in chimpanzees? Do they find things funny in the way that we find things funny? They absolutely do. I mean, there's all kinds of examples. Big, big brother, like he's grown up. He's got a little infant of, say, nine months just beginning to totter. So big brother is going around a tree dragging a vine and little baby brother is trying to catch it. And every time he's just about to grab it, Big Brother pulls it away and in the end <laughs> Baby gets frustrated and starts screaming and Big Brother 
just laughing. And you know, that's just one example. Yeah, I can vouch that the relationship between big and little brothers is much the same across the primate species. I'm sure this is a an email or a letter or even a tearful person in an airport you confront a lot. But if there was somebody of approximately now the age you were then who decided what I want to do is go somewhere remote and make some sort of study of nature, what do you wish you'd known at the time that you learnt later? Well, I can't really answer that. People do ask me that. But it all worked out so perfectly. And that was partly because I didn't know. I didn't know that science informed that animals didn't have personalities, minds or emotions. I didn't know that. Leakey particularly wanted someone with a mind uncluttered by what he (laughs) considers absurd scientific, what did he call it, gobbledygook, I think. And he thought women made better field researchers because they'd be more patient Partly because what I say is back in those days, the perception was that the woman would kind of sit and a white knight would come along and take her off to be married and look after her. Whereas the man has to get his PhD and he's got to support and be the breadwinner. And that's changed. It's kind of more equal now. Jane Goodall, thank you very much. Thank you. The Big Interview is produced by Gaia Lutz and Yolene Goffan and edited by Cassie Galpin. I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.